Good evening, church. It's good to see each of you here tonight. I want to encourage you to take your Bibles, please, and turn to Haggai chapter 2. And if you've never turned to Haggai, uh, you go to the end of the Old Testament, not in the middle of your Bible, it's going to be to the right of center, but go to the end of the Old Testament and go to the third book from the end, Haggai. Haggai chapter 2. We're going to read the first nine verses. We are in a series of studies of this little book of Haggai, which is rarely talked about, but I think it's a wonderful book to consider because it's an example of revival or spiritual awakening in the Old Testament. And a lot of the principles that are there apply to our experience of revival today. Few of us in our generation have experienced true corporate or church-wide revival. But it is your birthright as a believer, and we have talked about that now for a couple of weeks. Tonight we're going to talk about an aspect of revival that is also rarely discussed because we, again, have uh, so little experience with revival, but I want to talk about it anyway. Overcurring, overcoming discouragement during a move of God. Overcoming discouragement during a move of God. Now, this will apply not only to our study of Haggai, because that's what was happening in the 6th century B.C., as we read about this. And not only does it apply to revival as something that occurs during revival, it also applies to anybody when they're discouraged. I want you to understand tonight that when God is at work, the enemy is at work as well. And that often when God is about to do something in your life, the enemy is working overtime to try to discourage you. And it's so important that you and I recognize the relationship between God's activity and the enemy's activity. And, and instead of backing away from the fight, we need to learn how to step into the fight. And as we do that, as we lean in, focusing on what God is doing and not what the enemy is doing, we will then move on into the next phase of revival or whatever it is that God is doing in our life. If we don't, disaster waits, and we'll see that tonight. Haggai chapter 2, I want to read verses 1 to 9. We have studied in the first chapter what happened when the people of God were supposed to rebuild the temple. After serving years in exile because a previous generation had fallen into idolatry and God carried the nation of Israel into captivity, when they were released and they came back during the time of Ezra, their assignment was to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. It had been destroyed. They started the foundation and then stopped. And for some 15, 16 years, that's all that was done until Haggai showed up. Haggai said, look, and he began to dismantle their excuses. One of their excuses was it's not time to rebuild the temple of God. It's not time to do that. Um, and then he challenges them. But is it time to take care of yourself? Is it time to take care of your house while God's house lies neglected? And so he challenged them. And then he went on to show that God had actually been correcting them through a kind of remedial judgment that they were taking three steps forward, two steps back at every turn in life. It seemed like they just could not get ahead. Everything they had done to get to a place of stability so that they could work on the house of God from the comfort of a stable existence never happened. They never got to that place. They put coins into a purse, Haggai says, and it's like there's a hole in the bottom. You ever had that experience? 
Maybe you're having it now. And uh, in this particular case, it was corrective judgment, remedial judgment on the, on the people of God. I don't know that that's what's happening in your case, but it was in this case. Now, when we come to chapter 2, this is the third message that Haggai has preached. And so we begin reading in chapter 2, verse 1, and it's, these are dated. So this particular message, uh, those people who study these things tell us it happened on October 17th, 520 B.C. October 17th, 520 B.C. Chapter 2, verse 1. In the seventh month, on the 21st of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? Yet now, be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord. And be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And be strong, all ye people of the land, says the Lord. And work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. According to the word that I covenanted with you, when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, it is a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land. And I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations. And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. And every time you see the word hosts, insert the word armies. Lord of armies. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for your word. We thank you for giving it to us. And we pray, Holy Spirit, tonight that you would take the truths of this word and apply it to each of our hearts. Father, we, whenever we come together, I know that someone here is discouraged and that you are speaking to that dear one tonight in a way that only you understand a way that is mysterious and powerful, I pray that you would touch, speak to, and encourage that dear one's heart. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Discouragement during a move of God. When this message occurs, it's been a month since message number two. You remember when we studied the first message, there was a delay between that one and message number two. I think it was about three weeks. Between that message and this message, message number three, it's been about almost a month. So it's been about a month since message number two, and it's during this month that if you go to the next book in the Bible, Zechariah, that Zechariah begins to preach. And so now you've got simultaneous prophets at work. You've got Haggai preaching, you've got Zechariah preaching. And so if you're really going to study 
what's going on with the people of God at this moment in their history, you have to read both books and kind of figure out which message was spoken when to figure out all that God was doing. But we're going to focus tonight on this third message of Haggai. What I want you to see is that the enemy often attacks with discouragement in order to stop you from being a part of a work of God. When you recognize what God is saying to you, as these people did, and you say yes to the Lord, you repent, and you turn to him and say, God, I'm sorry I've been doing life without you. I really see that I've been wrong about that, trying to do life without you, and now I'm turning to you, and I'm, I'm getting on your agenda. I want to do what you want me to do with my life. I want to be a part of your purpose in my generation. I want to be right in the center of your will. The moment you decide that, the enemy comes after you. Now, he's not worried about you if you come to church. He's not worried about you if you do church things, teach Sunday school, be a deacon, be a preacher. He's not worried about that. He is worried if you begin to say yes to God with your life. And those things may be what God has in mind for you, but when you begin to really zero in on what God made you for and why you are on this earth, uh, the enemy is going to attack you. And these emotions can be intense and they can be powerful emotions. Discouragement in powerful forms. The emotions can be overwhelming, can zap all motivation out of you. And the enemy comes at you with lie after lie after lie about who you are and what God's doing with you. He wants you to believe that you've misunderstood God, you've missed God. That, um, that he's not at all leading you and that you're making a terrible mistake by taking the step of faith. He will plant hopelessness in your heart if he can. That there is no hope. There's no way life's going to be any different. No way it's going to be any better. He'll get you to do everything except wait on God for God to keep his promise. The next step after discouragement is disobedience. And that's when it gets serious. And dear ones, time does not permit me to tell you all the stories of people who have been greatly used by God and then became discouraged and then became disobedient and then it became a disaster spiritually, morally, for whatever it was they were a part of, whether it's a pastor or a revivalist or a dad or a mom or a deacon or whoever. There are story after story I could tell you of men and women who've been greatly used by God, saying yes to God, who got discouraged, then disobedient, and then disaster came. How many times did Moses get discouraged with the people of God? What did it cost him when that discouragement led to an act of angry disobedience? Elisha had had one of the great moments in anybody's history of trusting God, and a great fire came from heaven, devoured a sacrifice right in front of hundreds of false prophets. And it led to their destruction and the exaltation of the one true God. And it wasn't just verses later that we see Elisha running from the queen, the wicked queen Jezebel, and hiding and cowering and coming to a place in his life where he's so despondent he thinks he's the only one left in Israel who's faithful to God. And God begins to rebuild his heart. But he's discouraged. I think about um, John the Baptist and Jesus saying of him that there was no greater one 
no greater man born among women than this man John the Baptist. He was faithful to the Lord. He preached the kingdom of God. He was the forerunner of Jesus the Messiah, his cousin. And yet there came that moment where he's sitting in prison, ultimately going to be executed. And the things that he preached about, the fire that was coming, the, the axe being laid at the roots, none of that was happening. None of that was happening. And he sends some disciples to talk to Jesus, and he says, are you the coming one? Now remember, John the Baptist was there when Jesus was baptized. He heard the voice from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He saw, he knew what Jesus had been doing. He knew what he was about. But even at that moment, he's discouraged. And he's expressing doubt. I think of how many pastors, church leaders, just in Southern Baptist life over the last year, who either in their past or in their present, have had some disobedience exposed, some immorality, some moral impurity, some failure, and it led to their stepping off the scene. At one point, greatly used. At some point, stepping away from the heart of God. And disaster followed. This is real stuff. And so, that moment you expect to happen during a revival, it happens here. Haggai has been greatly used of God. He's not discouraged, but some of the people apparently are. The people have said yes to God. They have turned, and they are gathering the materials. They are going to rebuild the temple. And as we saw last week, it was a, not only an external activity where they heard a message and they said yes to it, but the Holy Spirit of God had come in and was stirring up their insides. They were stirring up their spirit. Something was happening inside them. And so it was a spiritual dynamic. It was real. It was intense. And then we come to chapter 2. I want to share with you two major symptoms of discouragement. There are more than two. But I want to share with you two of them. And if this speaks to you, it's why you're here tonight. The first one is this, dwelling on the past. Dwelling on the past. Now why is that a source of discouragement? In verse 3 that we read, the prophet asked the question, who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? Now, what he's describing is, is actually a repetition. They're rebuilding the temple. They're redoing the foundation. I don't know how much they've completed already in the, in the first month of construction. But as they look at it, there are some old-timers there. Some people who remembered the temple before it was destroyed, the one that Solomon built. They remember this. And when they see what's being built, and in their mind they can't help it, they think to the past, and they remember what it was like in the past. And what they remember in the past was so much better than what's happening in the present. When this happened 16 years earlier during the time of Ezra, in Ezra chapter 3, verse 11, listen to this. As they laid the foundation of temple number 2, this is 16 years earlier, all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes. And what happened 16 years ago, it's happening again. 
The prophet's asking the question, who's left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? Is this not in your eyes as nothing? Now, if you want to get a, an understanding of why these people wept, they're not spiritual wimps because they were weeping. They really do remember something amazing. You go in, in your margin, if you're taking notes, 1 Kings 6. Go and read the description of the former temple. How it was inlaid with gold and silver and precious things and, and the excellence with which it was constructed and the size and, and the sheer beauty and the magnificence of this thing that was to be the house of God. That's what they were remembering. They were saying, this can't even hold a candle to it. But what they forgot were the horrific failures of the people who had worshipped in that temple. In fact, when that temple was dedicated in 1 Kings 9, God says, I'm going to visit this place, I'm going to be here, I'm going to show up when you all show up, but... If you disobey me, and I'm paraphrasing, if you disobey me, if you fall away from me, if you worship other gods, he said, I'm going to destroy this place. It's going to cease to exist. And people are going to look at it and going to ask, what happened here? And in 1 Kings 9, verse 9, when they ask what happened here, they will answer, because they forsook the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and have embraced other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this calamity on them. Now, the people who were weeping in Haggai's day forgot that. The building wasn't the same, but the people weren't the same either. The people who had built that temple within a generation had fallen into idolatry. An adulterous commitment to other gods instead of loving and worshiping the one true God. The great danger of continually living in the past is we make an idol of the past. And if we, we live in the past and we always see what's happening today as less than what happened then, we miss what God wants to do today. Your present, I don't care what's happened in your past, your present and your future are more important to God today than your past. Your past is never as important as your future and what God is doing today. Well, the first symptom of discouragement is dwelling on the past. Is that something you struggle with? You know, I'm, I'm not a young man anymore, although I suspect in 20 years I'll look back and say, boy, you were young. One of the games I like to play when I get to a group of people is say, well, who's the first president you can remember? That's always a shocker. Talk to someone like Dustin. He can remember. You don't even remember Ronald Reagan, do you? No, you don't remember Ronald Reagan. You know what I mean? And, and yet I, I already know that there are times where I can look back at the past and I can see certain periods of my life and say, man, what a wonderful thing God was doing at that moment in my life. Certain experiences that we've had, certain times in the life of churches that we've been part of, and I think back to those moments and I think, boy, those were the greatest moments in my walk with God. But you know what? The greatest moments in my walk with God and the greatest moments in your walk with God haven't happened yet. 
God has far more that he wants to do with you than you have ever experienced to this moment. That's a statement of faith, but I believe it's the truth. That's why Paul said, forgetting what is past. That's how we're called to live. Well, the second source of discouragement, dwelling on the past, the second one is this, wanting to quit. Have you ever wanted to quit? I think if we voted on that one, it would be unanimous. Listen to verse 4. And you've got to read between the lines, but I don't think it's too hard. Verse 4, yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord, and be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and be strong, all ye people of the land, says the Lord, and work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. Now, why does he tell them to work? Why does he need to tell them, work, be strong, and work? Because they don't want to work. Something's going on in their heart, their life. They're wanting to step back from the work. They've been at it for a month, but, but you know, if they're listening to some of the older folks who are crying in the background, they're saying, yeah, you're working on that, but let me tell you what it used to be like. What you guys are doing is not going to be anything like the way it was. What you're doing is a small thing compared to the great thing that God has done. I mean, you keep hearing that every day. Do you think you're going to want to do the next thing? You want to keep doing, building this temple that is already inadequate and inferior in the minds of others? I believe they wanted to quit. Now, why did God say this to them? We can't do this as well, they were probably thinking. We can't match the skills that were used. They hired craftsmen from out of country. They brought special people in, special materials. We can't do as well. We can't match those skills. We can't do those materials. I can't do what those people did. And so wanting to quit is part of a symptom of discouragement. Now remember that if that's happening, you need to understand it doesn't stop with discouragement. The enemy uses discouragement to get you to disobedience. It never just stops with discouragement. The idea behind discouragement is to keep you from being sensitive to God, obeying God, walking with God, loving God, spending time alone with God. Discouragement makes you step back from all of that. That's why it's so important. The psalmist is a great example of this. It's so important that when you are discouraged, to turn to the Lord and pour out your complaint, pour out your heart to Him. Peter says, casting all your care on Him, for He cares for you. And so you come in faith and you say, God, I'm discouraged. It's okay to say that. He knows it already. You're not informing Him of anything. God, I'm discouraged. God, I don't think I can take another step. God, I'm just going to lie here before you. And I'm just going to worship you. I'm going to give you my heart and let you do whatever you want to with my heart. Oh God, give me a new heart. Create in me a new heart, David would write. A clean heart, a pure heart, a new heart. Wanting to quit. Well, also in this passage, we see God's word for the discouraged. Again, there is much scripture to find in terms of God's words for encouragement. But I want you to see what's in this particular text. God is moving in a mighty way. He has stirred up their hearts. And they're, they're being plagued with thoughts of the past and comparisons with the past and wanting to quit. And, and they're just discouraged. Here's God's word for the discouraged. Number one, I am with you. Now, if I know that God's with me, 
you can say what you want to about what I'm doing. But he just overrode your criticism. He says, I am with you. Haggai chapter 2 verse 4. He says it three times. And boy, when God says something three times, you need to pay attention. He says, yet now be strong. He said that to Zerubbabel. And be strong. He said that to Joshua. And be strong. He said that to everybody else. But he says it three times. And work. All of you work. For I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. In verse 5, he says, my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. When there is work to be done, God's leading you to do that work. He never asks you to do that work in your own strength, in your own power, or by yourself. Never. Nowhere in Scripture will you find God telling you to go do something, and he just stands back and says, no, he just lets you go do it. No. Whatever he asks you to do, he's there with you to do it. In the New Testament, he's there within you to do it. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so there's this conception of being indwelled. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Whatever God asks you to do, whatever God directs you to do, he is with you. He never intends you to do it without him. Never. Not never. So when I look at this temple that's being built, and everybody around me is saying, well, this is small compared to what used to be. God says, but you don't understand, Don. I'm with you in building this temple. You can take the other temple, throw it under the bus. We're doing something new. We're building something new. I'm with you. I am in this work. So he says, be strong. What does that mean? That's inwardly. Now, I'm not going to translate it from the Hebrew as suck it up, buttercup. But it's an internal attitude. Stand. Be strong. Develop a can-do mindset. Forget the defeat, defeated mindset. And, and he says, be strong inwardly. How do you do that? Resting in what he said. He said, I am with you. Rest in that. Believe that, that he is there. You may not always feel his presence, but he is present. Which brings up a whole topic, which we're not going to be able to discuss tonight, but I just want to address it briefly. There is, there is often a fight between your feelings and faith. And the longer that I walk with the Lord, I find that it's more and more important to me to simply trust God without regard to my feelings. Now, I'm not saying that there's not a place for joy. I'm just saying that if I'm not joyful, i am still got to trust the Lord. We cannot rely on our feelings to determine whether or not God is here. God says, I am with you. Jesus says, I'm with you always, end of the end of the age. That is true whether I feel good today or I feel bad today. And so I have to rest in that. I have to trust that that is true. My precious Savior, my wonderful Savior who loves me so much, he drank the cup for me like we talked about this morning. He didn't deny anything, didn't hold anything back. My Savior loves me. Doesn't matter how I feel. That's the truth. One of the great things that I've had to learn to do over the course of my life, and there's a lot of baggage in my own heart, issues in my life, we all have them. 
And uh, one of the things I've had to learn to do is, is to learn that, that God's love for me has not a lot to do with whether I'm lovable today or not. God says in so many places that he loves you and me. One of my favorites, it just hit me like a, a hurricane a couple years ago. Jeremiah 31.3, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And the thing that really pulled the trigger on that for me was that suddenly I began to understand how God's love works. I have loved you with an everlasting love means I have loved you in such a way that there's been no beginning to my love and there is no ending to my love. That's what everlasting means. If there's a beginning and an end, it's not everlasting. Everybody get that? Everybody agree with that? If there's a beginning and an end, it's not everlasting. And so there's never been a time that God didn't love you, began to love you, and now he loves you. There's never been a time like that. He never started loving you. I have loved you with an everlasting love. And so if you're a person that struggles with the reality of whether or not God loves you, this is a place where there's a a struggle between feelings and faith, if you're that kind of person. And what I need to understand is not whether or not I can be loved. I need to get out of myself more and more and understand how the God of the universe loves how he loves. It's very different than the way I love. And so God's word for this courage, he's saying, I am with you. That is a fact. If you're a believer tonight, you've trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, he is with you. Here's another word for the discouraged. I am using you. Not only am I with you, I am using you. There's a promise here in Haggai chapter 2, verse 8. He says, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. By the way, thinking about that former temple, all those people were saying, oh, it's just not like as good as, it's not as good as the old temple. It had gold in it, it had silver in it. It was so amazing. It had all these wealthy things in it. Rich thing, God says, hey, the gold's mine, all the silver's mine, the whole planet. No big deal. Gold is mine, silver's mine. But listen to this promise in verse 9. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. You know what he just said? He said that this temple and all the criticism people are throwing at it, listen, this one's going to be better than that other one. This one is going to be better than that other one. The glory of this one's going to be greater than that one. We're going to see why in just a moment. Well, I can just tell you, which one did Jesus walk in? This one, the one that's being built. Jesus was dedicated in this one. I am using you. So how is it possible that the glory of this latter temple will be greater than the former? How is that possible? He, in verses 6 and 7, he talks about something that's really important, and we could spend several studies just talking about this concept. But he says, for thus says the Lord of hosts, Haggai 2, verse 6 through 7a. Once more, it is a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land, and I will shake all nations. Now, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but he's saying this for a reason. Anything you and I build is normally not going to last. And what he's describing, there's an immediate fulfillment, the national structures that have, have swallowed up Israel as each conquering nation was conquered by another nation, those 
those national structures are about to collapse. I'm going to shake them, he says, and they're going to fail. But, but it's also something that's going to happen in the future. And so, so many times, prophecy, particularly in the minor prophets and the major prophets, prophecy has an immediate fulfillment and then a secondary ultimate fulfillment, and that's certainly the case here. You say, well, Don, how do you know that? Well, you can just jot it down in the margin. You don't need to turn there, but just listen. I'm reading from Hebrews 12, verse 25. And it actually quotes this passage from Haggai. So listen to me carefully. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he is promised, saying, yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. The first time God spoke and he shook the earth, does anybody remember when that happened? Anybody want to guess? When God spoke and the earth shook. Exodus 19, Mount Sinai. Before Moses went up on the mountain, God was going to speak to the people directly. And when he spoke, the mountain shook. And the ground shook. The heavens shook. And they said, we don't like this conversation. We don't want to talk to God like this. And so when he says, once more, it is a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, you know what he's saying? I'm about to speak again. And you know, when God, when God speaks, he acts. He also acts when he sins, but he always acts when he speaks. And, and so in Hebrews, the writer is saying, he's referring to that, that experience at Sinai, but then he is promised, saying, yet once more, I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. So he's quoting Haggai. We know that the national structures in Haggai's day are going to collapse. They're going to be shaken and falling apart. But, but the writer of Hebrews says, no, this prophecy is also referring to something that's yet to come. Hebrews 12, 27, listen. Now this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken. As of things that are made, created things, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. You know, all of that was packed into what Haggai was saying to the people. Look, this temple's not going to last anyway. But we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. The whole concept of the shaking is that when that time comes, the shaking time comes, Peter and others talk about how the very elements of, of the universe are going to fly apart. The Greek word's lua, it means loose. They're going to fly apart. And the whole universe is going to come apart at the seams at the end of time. The only thing that lasts is the kingdom of God, the rule of God, and everything in that kingdom. If you're a Christian tonight, guess what? You're part of the kingdom of God. You're part of that realm that cannot be shaken, that will not be destroyed, that will last. So yeah, you're building a temple like I told you to build a temple, and I'm using you. This temple is going to be amazing, but listen, while we're talking about earthly things and material things and whether something on earth looks better than something else on earth, I just want to remind you, I'm about to shake everything up anyway. So everything temporal will not survive the shaking or the voice of God. And then he's talking about a seeking. He says, I will shake all nations. And then he says, and they shall come to the desire of all nations, also in verse 7. They shall come to the desire of all nations. Now, that phrase, the desire of all nations, have you ever heard that before? You ever heard Handel's Messiah? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's in, it's in hymns. 
It's in songs. Typically, the desire of all nations refers to, to what or to whom? Jesus. Now, there's some, I'll be honest with you, there's some commentators say, no, it's not talking about Jesus. Uh, I, don't, I have a hard time. I've read those explanations that try to explain it away and say he's not talking about Jesus. But, but they are so strained that it's, it's not believable. How will the greater glory comes? The greater glory comes when Jesus walks into the place. This temple is going to be greater than the last one because Jesus is going to walk in this temple. That foundation that you're looking at and you say, oh, that's pitiful compared to the old foundation, Jesus' feet are going to walk on those stones. There's a seeking that will come. They shall come to the desire of all nations. There's a glory to it in verse 7. And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. And that greater glory is when he comes. When Jesus was brought into the temple as a baby and he was dedicated, there was a man named Simeon who had been promised that he would not die till he saw the Messiah. And in Luke chapter 2, verse 32, he bursts out in song and he says to, about the baby, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Haggai said the glory of this temple is going to be greater than that other one. Why? Because glory himself is going to walk in this temple. And then, in verse 9, he talks about peace. He says, and in this place, in this place, this place that you don't think is as good as the old one, I will give peace. And that word in Hebrew is shalom. And shalom is more than just the absence of conflict. Shalom is the fullness of life. It is life as God intended it to be. It is the removal of all sin and everything that sin has broken in creation and has broken in humanity. And he says, in this place, I'm going to give that to people. I'm going to give shalom. I'm going to give peace. I'm going to put things back the way I intended them to be in people's hearts and in this world through this temple. How is that possible? Because Jesus walked in that temple. Jesus walked in that temple. So the point is, this thing you're weeping over, my son's going to stand there. Never be discouraged when you're doing my will. Discouragement during a move of God. I don't know about you, but it seems to me that every time I've ever decided that I'm going to say yes to God, I'm going to do something that I believe God wants me to do, Every time, no exception. It seems that everything in the world has conspired to keep me from doing it. For example, have you ever made up your mind? Maybe you don't have this habit in your life. You don't have this discipline, this, this meeting time with God every day. And you've decided, I'm going to start meeting with God every morning. And you've made that decision. I'm going to meet with God every morning at 6 o'clock or 6.30 or 7 o'clock or whatever. And the moment you make that decision, you may have been getting up at 6 o'clock for 45 years, but you make the decision to spend time alone with God at 6 o'clock, and the smoke alert goes off and you can't find batteries, or somebody calls you, or somebody throws a newspaper right in the middle underneath the car, or something happens that ties up your time 
And you begin to realize, you know, I don't think somebody wants me to have this time alone with God. And, and you, normally, you normally get along with your kids, you normally get along with your spouse, and, and suddenly you don't get along with anybody at 6 o'clock in the morning. And you were here, you're all set to get spiritual, get, get your heart right with God. And by the time you get there, you're so mad you could spit. I know none of you ever have that problem. But whenever you set your heart to say yes to the Lord, Lord, I just, I'm just going to walk with you. I'm going to say yes to you. I'm going to do this thing. I think you're leading me to do blank. Watch for the discouragement to come. Don't be surprised when it comes. Don't let it derail what God has put in your heart to do. Be strong. Be strong. Be strong. I am with you, says the Lord. I am with you, says the Lord. This thing that you're a part of, I'm in it. And if you'll be a part of this thing that I'm in, it's going to be the greatest thing that you could ever be a part of in your life.